<laughs> Praise God. It's been one of those years, and it just... Uh, and I looked at the calendar, and there was nobody else scheduled, so I said, well, I'll take a shot at it. And uh, so we better pray. Father, we thank you tonight for the wonderful opportunity to come here and to worship you and to honor you and set our hearts on the one that is so important, all important, and that is Jesus, your Son, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God. And Jesus, we come to you. You are the head of the church. We're here to serve you tonight and as we serve you, to allow you through the Holy Spirit and the Word to serve and minister to us. So we pray tonight, Father, that by the anointing of your Spirit, that we may hear what it is we need to hear, because you know where each one of us is tonight and what each one of us needs to hear. And for that, we trust you in advance and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, I had an idea of what to do. I was thinking of beginning to do a series I've done a number of times here, which is Renewing the Mind. But with the schedule, it would be very broken up. So I woke up at four this morning, and uh, a message kind of came to me. And sometimes that's how it happens. And as I was uh, running on an errand this morning, and I called in to give them a title, I gave them a title, and then when I got back to the office, I couldn't remember why I gave them that title. So I'm not sure what the message is going to be tonight. The title of the message is, go ahead, you can put it up there, Mind Over Matter. Mind over matter. And that's a, that's a common expression. I remember uh, three years ago when I turned 70, Tony Cook sent me a message of condolence. And uh, he said, because uh, uh, he isn't there yet, he said, uh, 70 is just an age, just a year. He said, uh, it's just a matter of mind over matter. If you don't mind, it doesn't matter. And uh, there are a lot of cute sayings like that about mind over matter. So I decided to look it up and see where it comes from. And it, it actually has a history to it. It was first used in the 1860s by, of all people, a geologist who was commenting on evolutionary growth of human and animal minds across history. And it, it's come to, to, to mean, in our common everyday uh, uh, vernacular, to mean the ability of our mind, by its own determination, to overcome difficulties and, and, and push through situations. And in its extreme, in Eastern religions, it even has the concept that by the power of the mind, we can physically move things. Remember Star Wars and things like that, and Dr. Spock, and they could move things with their mind. And, and, and it's, it's a reference to the tremendous power of the mind. And the mind is created by God. Mind is God's idea. I think we, we charismatic, whatever we are, Christians, we tend to think that the Bible says that we're transformed by the removing of our, of our mind, not the renewing of our mind. That somehow that if we, if we use our mind, we're being unspiritual, and yet God gave us our mind. And our mind is a very important thing. And if we don't learn how to harness that mind and to use that mind for the right purposes and for God's purposes, that mind will get you in trouble. And if you've been around long enough and you're at all self-aware, you've seen how your mind can just... You just let your mind wander. It will not wander into good things unless you really have, have programmed it. Well, I don't have time, certainly tonight, to teach that course on renewing the mind. We may do that sometime next year. But there's a particular aspect of it that I want to kind of highlight on tonight, which is something that I've been meditating on. Um, uh, just on mind over matter, just... it's. Uh, Anytime Satan takes something like this concept of, of the strength of the mind, he, all Satan can do is pervert something 
that God has created. So there must be some truth about the power of the human mind. There's got to be because Satan bombards your mind to get at you. Because the, as a man thinks, so is he. So what we think about, how we think, the patterns that we think about are very important. And Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, chapter 1, verse, verse 1, he says that we are, we, are to be, uh, we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice. And in verse 2, he says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of the mind. What he's referring to there is that when you came to Christ, by the way, just to step back a second, because this is what I teach in the beginning of that course. To really understand what we're going to talk about tonight, you need to understand this, and I know many of you know this, so this is kind of a review. Some of you are relatively new, you may not have heard this here before, but you're made up of three parts. Three parts. Your spirit, your soul, and your body. Now, there's some parts of the body of Christ that teach you've only got two parts, your soul and your body, and I don't have time to get in tonight to show you why that's wrong. It's right as so far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. But you are, your essence of who you are is a spirit being. That's the true nature of who you are. That's the nature of who you are before you came to Christ, and that's the nature of who you are after you came to Christ, and that's the part of you God came, changed in you, when you came to Christ. Because your spirit is your inner nature. And your inner nature is what produces the fruit in your life. Jesus says you can tell what they're like by the fruit. You can tell what kind of tree it is by the fruit it produces. And so the same way, a sinner sins because that's their nature, because their nature is to sin. Ephesians chapter 2 uh, starting in verse 1, talks about while we were still sinners, we were, we were among those of the world that sinned by nature. It was our nature to sin. So when you came to Christ, what God changed in you was the only part you couldn't change. He changed your nature because He knew if He could change your nature, He could change the fruit that you produce. And I've used this example many times when people respond to an altar call. You can tell unless you're a real horticulturist and you can look at the bark of a tree. In order to tell what kind of a tree it is, you've got to see what it produces, either the leaves it produces or the fruit that it produces. So uh, an apple tree produces apples because it's the nature of an apple tree to produce apples. So you can tell it's an apple tree. In fact, you can tell what kind of apple tree it is by the kind of apples that it produces. But if you wanted to change that into a pear tree and you didn't know any better, you could go buy pears and glue them on the branches. And if somebody didn't look more closely, they might look and say, well, that's a pear tree because I see pears. But of course, you realize the first wind we have or the first rainstorm, those pears will fall off the tree because they didn't come out of the nature of the tree. We stuck them on there to try to change the tree into a different kind of tree. In the same way as human beings, we instinctively know that we're not good enough. So what we try to do is make ourselves good enough by gluing on ourselves good works. Thinking that the good works will change us into a good person. But the first storm of life that comes along, we revert back to our nature and what's in us is what comes out of us. So what God did, and I, we don't have time tonight to go through all the scriptures, what God did when you, when you called on Christ, God came into you, and Ezekiel says, He took out an old heart of stone. 
Well, a stone is hard. It has no sensitivity. It's, it's a hard thing. God took your old heart of stone out and put in, it says, a heart of flesh, a heart that's alive, a heart that's sensitive. And then he says, and beyond that, he put his spirit in there. So when you came to Christ, God took your old nature out and birthed in you a new nature which come, came from him. That's why we're children of God, because we've been born of Him. In the Gospel of John, in the beginning, it says, He, he came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But as any of us received Him, He gave them the right to become children of God, born not of the blood, born not of the flesh or the will of man, but born of, and that Greek word is ek, out of, God. So when you came to Christ, your nature was changed into His nature. That's one-third of you. But you have two other thirds. You have your soul, which is your mind, your will, and your emotions. And you have your body, which is your flesh. And when we teach renewing the mind, I have a chart to show all this to you. And so what happens is, the part of you that God changed is your nature. But the other two parts are our responsibility. So Paul says in Romans 12, 1, present your bodies a living sacrifice. In other words, present them to God to be used by Him, a sacrifice which is holy and acceptable unto God. And then in verse 2, God deals with the other part of you. He says, and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When we studied that, we discovered that the word transformed Actually, the Greek word that it comes from means to take the nature on the inside and work it to the outside. In other words, bear the fruit. This is what Paul means in Philippians when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It does not earn your salvation. Take it, what God put in here, and work it to the outside. And we're all in that process because the Holy Spirit has been put in you to enable you to do that. But in order to cooperate with God in this process, we have to recognize these three parts of us. The part that God's already changed. That's the part that made you righteous. This is why you can stand before God. If you're in Christ, you can stand before God in Christ as righteous as Jesus Christ is, even though you've messed up all day long. Because what makes you righteous isn't how you behave today. What makes you righteous is your nature. And God changed that nature into His nature. You've been given, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin on that cross, so that we, who knew lots of sin, might become the righteousness of God in Christ. God literally took His righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, and put it in you. Because you're in Him. So in God's eyes, if you're in Christ, you're just as righteous as Jesus is, because you're in Christ. And He's righteous. And I can see some of your eyeballs going around like this. What's He talking about? Well, you need to meditate on that. Because it's exactly what the Word of God says. But we're in the process of learning how to take that righteousness that He put on the inside and work it out in our everyday life so that we begin to act outwardly as righteous as He's made us on the inside. And we're going to talk a little bit tonight about how, how to do that. 
how to do that. And of course, renewing the mind is the process that, that God has, has ordained to do that. So to do this, let's go, let's look at Romans chapter 8. This is what I was, the other thing I was tempted to get into. But we seem to be going in this direction. If I could only have one chapter out of the Bible, I would have this chapter. In fact, I had it virtually memorized because I went over it so many times. I clung to it. I took it apart because I had so much of a struggle to, under, to believe that I was not condemned and I was not a bad Christian and I was not so messed up. I had to literally live in this chapter for so long. And I, I just, I, if I go back to verse 1, we'll never get out of it. But let's go to verse 5. Let me give you a little background, though, without reading it. <laughs> the, the, this whole book is teaching this doctrine of righteousness by faith. That go, well, just what I've tell, explained to you. That's what this whole book is about, at least up, up through the first nine chapters, eight chapters. And in chapter 4, Paul explains what grace is. And he uses Abraham as his example. In chapter 5, he talks about how it came about and how it was applied to us. Then in chapter 6, he deals with the issue of, well, if we've been made, if sin abounds, grace abounds much more, which is how grace chapter 5 ends, then let's go all sin. The more we sin, the more we give God's grace a chance to abound. And Paul in Romans 6 corrects that and said, then you don't really understand what grace is because you're presuming on that grace. That if you really understand what God's done in you, you want to give yourself to Him to live as holy and righteous as you can. That's what chapter 6 is about. Then chapter 7, starting around verse 14, is about Paul's personal struggle to live this out. Then Paul talks about, he says, on the inside of me, I see this desire to live right before God. I see this desire to live holy and right before God. I, I wake up every morning wanting to live out. And the more I want to live it out, the less I do, the more I mess up. And he says, it seems as if there's two laws fighting within me, two principles fighting in me. Down inside of me, there's this principle of wanting to live right. But in my flesh, there's this other principle of the more I want to live right, the more I don't do it. Ever, ever relate to that? <laughs> the harder I try, the more I get, the more I say, this is how I'm going to live. It doesn't take long before they do that to go south quickly. <laughs> and the principle is there is the more you try to make yourself the way you're supposed to, the more you're going to fail. Because you can't do it. And that's what chapter 8 is all about. Chapter 8 basically says, what you could not do for yourself, God did. Paul ends chapter 7 by saying, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And that he answers it, thanks be to God for Christ Jesus. Because He delivered you from the power of sin and death. That's why Romans 8 begins, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Because what the law could not do because of the weakness of my flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of flesh, He condemned my sin in His flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be satisfied in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what you could not do for yourself, God did for you. And now he goes on to this principle, which is about how do we walk, how do we walk this out? For those who live according to the flesh, 
set their minds on the things of the flesh. Oh, before we keep that up there, I wanted to say this to you. The Bible says an awful lot about different types of minds, M-I-N-D-S, because that's what we're talking about. It talks about debased minds, anxious minds, futile minds, minds that can't produce anything, minds that are set on something, minds, shaken minds, sound minds, being of one mind, and it talks about the mind of Christ. So there are many different kinds of minds. What does that mean? It means what's the predominant thing in your mind? A shaken mind is a mind that's uneasy. It's always shaken by whatever's going around, on. Uh, an anxious mind is a mind that's always worrying. And you may know somebody that's like that. It may be the person in the mirror when you brush your teeth in the morning whose mind is always worrying. You're always looking for something to worry. That's an anxious mind. It doesn't mean the mind itself is anxious. It's what the mind is set on. And that's what we're talking about tonight. What the mind is set on. Debased minds are minds that are set on debased things, debasing things. And the mind of Christ is a mind that's set on the things that Christ's mind was set on. So, having said that by background, for those who live according to the flesh, so Paul's going to set up here two different kinds of minds. There's a, the carnal mind, which means the mind of the flesh, and there's the spirit mind, spiritual mind, which is a mind that's set on spiritual things. So when we talk about different kinds of minds, it's not that some person has a better mind than other, some person has a smarter mind. It's not the quality of mind, it's what the mind is set on, because your mind is set on something. Your mind, and if you don't set it on something, it will set itself, and it usually doesn't set itself on something good. When I get up in the morning, one of the very first things I do is I set my mind for that day. I have certain things that I set my mind. This is our course for the day. And I have some days I barely get out the door and I get off course. But that doesn't discourage me because I get up the next morning and I set my mind again. And the more I do that, the more during the day it comes back to me, oops, you're getting off course. Go back to what you set your course for when you got up. So if you don't set your mind on something, someone will. And it won't be something good because our mind is our responsibility. So this is what he's talking about here. So Paul talks about two different kinds of minds. And by that minds, set, there are two possibilities of where you can set your mind. And we're going to see it makes a huge difference how you live your life. For those who live according to the flesh, and by that he means those who are trusting in their flesh to make themselves right, set their mind on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. Verse 6. For to be carnally minded, that's the mind set on the flesh, is death. Now understand this. By setting your mind on the flesh, it doesn't mean you're just always looking at your hands and looking at your face in the mirror. It means this material world, the issues and things of this world. There's a battle that's going on. And this is the main thing I want you to see tonight. You are in a battle every day, every moment of every day. There's a battle between getting your mind's attention on the things of this life, the material stuff of this life. And by that I don't mean cars and houses, just those things. It's the issues of life, the worries of this life. 
uh, Jesus calls them the cares of this life, the things of this life. And because they're so, we're so conscious of them with our senses, they're very present to us. But the spirit realm is so much more real. This natural material realm is temporary. It's fading away. It's, it's, it's in Satan's hands. It's his domain. And we live so much of our life, so much of our time, so much of our energy, and devote so much of our heart to the things of this life, the things of this world, the carnal part of life, that we live very little room and very little attention to the things that are eternal. Not just eternal for us in heaven, but our, the kingdom, you know, the kingdom of God isn't in heaven, it's here. There's a heaven we're going to, but His kingdom's here, and it's in you. But how much of the kingdom of heaven in you are you conscious of during a day? How many situations come up where the God inside of you, Jesus inside of you through the Holy Spirit, wants to meet someone's need, and we look at it through natural terms and oh, that's overwhelming. I don't know what we could do about that. And the God inside of you wants to say, I can do something about that. But we don't even see that. Because we're so moved by what we see with our natural senses. That became more real to me when I went through that battle with cancer three years ago. Because when the doctor tells you you got cancer, your mind does all kinds of things. It just wants to jump on you. Fear, I could feel it out here. I, could walk, I can still see myself walking out of the doctor's office and I could feel fear out there trying to jump on my mind. And it was a Wednesday. I was going to come in here and preach. And I'm in here praying, trying to keep it away, keep it away, keep it away, keep it away, keep it away. And then I remember going through the treatments, looking at these machines, and God spoke to me, He says, you've got to realize, you're going into their territory. Not that they're bad, but you're going into the territory that's dominated by the senses. And you're going to see machines, you're going to hear devices, you're going to hear reports that are going to tell you one message and my word tells you a different message. You've got to become so ingrained in what my word says that you're not moved by what your senses see. And that was a very important lesson to me. Very important lesson to me. So Paul says here, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritual minded is life and peace. Now he's not necessarily talking about physically dying, although it can, if you miss a signal that the Holy Spirit's giving to you, you can be led off track very easily if you're led by your senses. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Next verse, 7. Because the carnal mind, that means a mind that's dominated and set on the things of this world. Not just your flesh, but the things of this world. The carnal mind is at enmity against God. Why? Because this material world is not in God's control. Some of you look at me, what? I thought God was sovereign. God is sovereign, but that doesn't mean everything that happens, God does. The Bible tells us, and I don't have time tonight to go through the scriptures, that Satan is now the God of this world. That's not how it was set up. God turned this world over to Adam to be the God of this world. And then Adam turned it over to Satan. 
And when Jesus stood in front of Satan on the, at the time of that temptation in the wilderness, Satan offered to give it to him. And that's called the temptation. How could that be a temptation if Satan didn't have the ability to give him dominion over the world? And I don't have time to get into why it would have been wrong for Jesus to do that. The carnal mind is that an to God. Why? Because it's not subject to the law of God. Indeed, it can't be, nor can it be. Verse 8. So then those who are in the flesh cannot... That's a strong statement. Cannot please God. That doesn't mean God doesn't love you, but you cannot please God if you're dominated by the flesh and by the things of this world. Because you're being led by things that are not of God. Years ago, I remember when I was a pastor of a smaller church before, I don't remember what was going on at the time, but there was a bunch of issues that just kept coming up. Problems were coming up. And, and it was in my life, it was in people's life of the church, and I was running around trying to, and I just did a message. God showed me this message, and I physically laid it out. It was like running around putting out fires. Do you ever have a period of your life where you feel like you're just putting out fires here and putting out fires there? And I was in the middle of this, and the Lord spoke to me. He says, you know, while you're doing that, I'm not leaving you. I said, what? He said, you're being led by whoever sets the fire. Because if you're over here putting this fire out, and you finally just about get this fire out, and there's a fire over here, and you're running over putting this fire out, and now you've got this fire put out, and you see a fire over here, and you put this fire out, what's leading you is the fires. And who sets the fires? Satan. So when we react to the crisis and fires without going first to God, we're allowing Satan to govern and lead our lives. Does that mean we don't need to deal with them? I'm not saying that. They brought crisis to Jesus several times. One of the most telling ones was Jesus was in a town with his disciples preaching. And a message comes to him that your good friend Lazarus is over in Bethany and he's dying. You better get there right away, Jesus, and pray for him. Jesus stayed there for two more days. That sounds very unfeeling, doesn't it? I thought Jesus was compassionate. I thought Jesus cared about his friend. Well, we know he did because when he got to the grave, he wept. So why didn't he go there? Because Jesus didn't react to crises. He didn't stop what God had told him to do, leave that alone, and run to take care of the crisis until he knew what the Spirit of God told him to go do. We do that with prayer too often. We'll get a text or an email of some crisis and we'll immediately start praying without knowing what God's telling us to do. Or finding out what God wants us to pray. We just throw prayers out there. Because it's the right... What do you do? You pray. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to pray. Pray what? Pray what? Well, pray for them to get better. Well, we better be more specific because it's a spiritual thing that's going on. And very often, God wants us to pray a specific thing towards a specific thing, but we don't ever take the time to fight it. We just react in our flesh to something that's spiritual. That's going on almost every day in the church with the issues of our nation. 
some issue gets on CNN or Fox News or something else, and everybody comes together, we could talk to one another, we get all worked up about it, and we're reacting to a spiritual matter in our flesh. Not only doesn't it do anything good, it cannot please God. And we're falling into the trap of the devil because we, we get frustrated because it doesn't work, and then we begin to doubt, well, I guess this prayer stuff doesn't work. Walking in the flesh or walking in the Spirit? Let's go over to Galatians chapter 5. We'll have another speaker next week, so don't worry about it. No, next week is prayer night. Galatians 5. Um, now, Galatians 5, up until now, he's been talking about how Christ has set us free from sin, that grace has set us free, and we're living in an age where grace is being very strongly emphasized in teachings, and, and, and it needs to be in some areas. But it's, uh, I don't want to get into this. I better not get into this, John. John, don't get into this. Don't get into this, John. Okay. And Paul's talking here about the liberty that comes to us in Christ. But then he warns us, and this is what needs to be taught more, there's a responsibility that goes with that liberty. Grace doesn't mean you can just do what you want to do because you've got a free pass into heaven. There's a term for that. It's called presuming on God's grace. That's when I use something that cost God's son his life so that I can get away with whatever I want to get away with. Grace is not to do that. Grace is to cover you through your weaknesses, your failures, because you're trying to do what's right and you slip and you fall and enables you to do things that you can't do yourself. But to say this because I got a free card because God paid for it, I can go do what I want, is to presume is to use God's grace for your own purposes. Okay, enough of that. So now Paul gets into this in verse 16. He talks about not using your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love to serve one another. Now in verse 16, and he's going to tell us how to do this. This is how to not let your flesh control you. And this is the very opposite of what we do. Most of the time, if we're struggling with some weakness whether it's eating or smoking or some weakness in our flesh, what we try to do is we try harder. I'm going to try harder. I just need to, be, I just need to try harder. That's what happens every January. Everybody that pigged out over the holidays now makes their New Year's resolutions. That's another word for lying to yourself. <laughs> and what we're saying, we, listen to how that works. We feel guilty... Because we know we got out of control. So I'm going to, I'm by my own effort, by the power of my own mind, I'm going to overcome something I've never been able to overcome before. But I'm going to overcome it this time because I'm going to be really determined this time. Anybody remember car radios that had push buttons? Anybody remember gear, car gears that were push buttons? There was just a few of those years, all right? Push button car radios, you know. And, and the one thing about it is you couldn't push two of them at once. So if you push the first one, the last one that was in popped out. 
So about the time you push this one to get it under control, the one that was under control popped out, and our flesh is like that. If you manage to get something under control of your flesh by your own effort, some other sin pops out. It's called pride. Look what I did. I did it. I got control of myself. And you're setting yourself up. See, this is why we, we need... Oh, this is another series. We need to stop thinking for ourselves and think what God says. God gives us the answers. It's real simple. It just is counter to our normal thinking. I say then... Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You're not going to get rid of the lust of the flesh, but you can stop fulfilling it. And eventually the fire goes out. You take the fuel away from a fire, the fire will go out. You blow on the fire, it's going to get bigger. Years ago, when I've forgotten what the situation was, but we hadn't been in a wave... Uh, Anita and I overnight for a while. Oh, I was in the other church, that's what it was, and going through some things. And finally we had an opportunity, so I, we, I had our four kids, we, two oldest ones are responsible. I said, look, for one night, I'm putting everybody, you're in charge of everything, okay? We're going to go away for the night. We just need a rest, and we'll come back and see you tomorrow. <clears throat> so we get up the next morning, and we're praying, and, and the phone rings, and it's my oldest son. We're okay, those aren't good words to hear, except the worst words were here were not okay. I said, what happened? Well, the fire's out. <laughs> okay? What fire? <laughs> well, here's what happened. And my, my daughter, was my, my son was trying to make donuts. And he had followed some recipe where he had some donuts, and he was frying them in a pan in oil and they caught fire so he turns and takes them over to the sink and he turns to his sister who's on the phone with her best friend paying no attention to what he's saying he says she said, what do I do he said put it under the wa- put it under the faucet well he did and you know what happened it went went right up the curtains, burned them like this, went across the ceiling, blackened the ceiling, went right up, we were praying for them, went right up over his head, it didn't touch him at all. It was a miracle. It was a miracle. But the point is, that wasn't the way to put the fire out. All it did is spread it. And many times what we do is, is we try to get control of our flesh and all we do is we fuel it. Whereas God's method is to take the fuel away. If you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Well, okay, that's great, Pastor. I want to do that. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? What it means is to walk more aware of the Spirit on the inside of you than the world that's outside of you. Say, that's hard to do. You have to work at it. You have to practice it. You have to set yourself up. You have to meditate in the Word. You have to pray in the Spirit. You have to do things that make you more aware of the Spirit being on the inside of you than the world that's on the outside of you. And you can do it. The reason we don't do it is either we don't know to do it or we're just plain lazy. But remember, the carnal mind, the carnal mind leads to death. 
And it may not be physical death, but it means a spiritual dying on the inside of you. You're just, you walk into church and you have trouble worshiping. You open your Bible and it doesn't mean anything to you. It's because the spirit inside of you is so starved. He's had so little attention, so little paid to him. But the senses that of our are so, so stimulated because we've spent so much time paying attention to them and feeding them and reacting to them. So when you've had a nice big breakfast and you're getting ready for lunch, and around 10 o'clock your mind, your body's telling you you need a snack, and you have to drop everything to go get that snack, you're being led by your flesh. Your body's telling you it's hungry instead of you telling your body it's hungry. This is what prayer and fasting does. And I'm preaching to me right now, okay? All of us, okay? It's, it's, it's walking in the Spirit means learning and you, you, you do that by spending time communing with the things of God. Meditating, not just reading the Word, but meditating on the Word. Rolling it around in your mind. I wake up in the night and I roll scriptures around in my mind. I walk, driving the car, I'm either praying in the Spirit or I'm meditating or, or I'm listening to something. And I'm soaking it in, I'm thinking about it all the time. And then I'm talk, talking to God begins to stretch your spirit, your heart out to Him so you can begin to be more aware that you're a spirit on the inside. So I've learned that in a crisis, instead of reacting to what's out there, to listen in here. And I've shared with you a number of examples, even when I was a lawyer. Crisis in cases in a courtroom where suddenly the judge threw my case out. And I went to the end of a long wooden bench and I said, I don't know what to do, God. I'm way out of my league here. I have no clue what to do. But I got quiet. And I had all kinds of voices speaking to me, telling me what to do, giving advice. And it was confusion. And I just got apart from them. I got quiet and I listened in here. And the Holy Spirit gave me a question to ask. Went back into the courtroom. I called that witness up. I asked the question. And it, un, it, it revealed a plot to destroy my client that had been hidden. I didn't know that. My client didn't know that. But the Holy Spirit knew that. My point is I learned to listen and hear. But you don't do that in the crisis. You do that when you're not in a crisis. And then when you get in the crisis, you've trained yourself to walk in the Spirit. Okay. Verse um, 17, 17. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. This is the war I talked about to begin with. There's a battle going on in you all the time. Your flesh wants attention and your Spirit wants to lead you. They're both vying to control you. And who you allow to control you determines whether you're walking in life and peace or you're living in failure and death. I don't mean physical death, but you're living in darkness, confusion, in all the works of death. These are contrary to one another. Look at this. So you do not do, you can't do the things that you wish. That's your flesh. You just have to tell your flesh, you can't do, you're not going to control me today. I'm not, you're, oh, stop it. You're not your flesh. You're not your body. That's just the house you live in here, in this earth. You're not your mind. Your mind is a tool God gave you to serve you and to serve Him. So you tell you, the real you on the inside tells your flesh what it's going to do and tells your mind what it's going to think about. And the Bible tells you what to meditate on. Philippians 4, 6, and 8. Meditate on these things. Think on these things. 
The Bible tells us what to think on and what not to think on. Verse 18. I've got to move on. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Okay, let's go to 2 Corinthians. This is so important. 2 Corinthians. We'll do this in the New King James first. 2 Corinthians 4. Paul here has just finished talking about the tremendous battles he's gone through. And he talks about being uh, 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 pressured on all sides, but not in despair. Per- uh, uh, not crushed. Perplexed. Paul, perple- Paul. Paul felt like, in fact, the beginning of this whole letter, he says, at one point I despaired of my life. Paul had a messenger from Satan assigned to him, and it may well have been Satan, because of the importance of Paul's ministry and call. And Paul cried out to the Lord three times to be delivered from this messenger of Satan. And God's answer wasn't, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Not your strength, my grace. And Paul says, I've learned a secret then. I glory in my weakness, because in my weakness, his strength is made perfect. In other words, my flesh can't do this. But I've learned to trust in the grace of God and the Spirit of God that's in me to overcome. And here's his secret to how he did this. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart. This is how, this is how he did not get discouraged. This is how he got through all of those battles. Though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. So Paul's talking here about the difference between his outer man, his body. Oh, this is good. He's talking about the battle his soul goes through. Because being, being pressured on all sides was pressure against his soul. Being perplexed is pressure against his soul. You ever go through a battle and you get weary? It's your soul that gets weary. Gets weary of the battle. Are we ever going to win? And you get these thoughts, which are Satan's darts. You're never going to get there. You're standing in faith and believing God, and it's never going to happen. Do you know anybody else that's happened to? All he's trying to do with thoughts is to undermine your confidence to keep standing. Why? Because he knows if you keep standing, you're going to win. But he's working on your soul. He can't get at your spirit. He's working on your soul because that the center of your soul is your will. And he, what he wants to do is get your will to side with your flesh and with him. And God's spirit is in you to get your will to side with the spirit of God in you. And you are the deciding witness of what will happen. Both your Satan through your flesh and God through your spirit are after your will to decide which way you're going to go in every situation. And so Paul says, because of what I'm going to teach you, I did not lose heart. My soul did not get discouraged. I had something happen yesterday and the other day, and just, I just could feel discouragement trying to creep in at me and try to say, you know, what, what, what have you done here? What's been accomplished? Well, I know what that voice is like. But just trying to wear me down. And I, I got up this morning, part of what I set myself is, I will not allow myself, I do not have the right to be discouraged. Because I belong to Christ. I don't have the right to decide for myself. That's, feel, that's feeling sorry for myself. 
And if I belong to Christ, I don't have the right to do that because I belong to Him. To feel sorry for myself is to separate myself from Him. So I set myself today. And yes, there were several times where that tried to creep in again, and I went back to what I set myself. No, you are not allowed to talk to myself. You're not allowed to feel sorry for yourself. We're not going to let... And it stopped. It's amazing when you do this, what you, the power that you have. Mind over matter. Mind over matter. Not mind without God, but mind that's siding with God over the matter of this earth. Let's see what else Paul says here. Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though the outward man, my flesh is perishing, it's struggling, it's having difficulty, but my inward man is being renewed day by day. So Paul's looking at what's going on on the inside and not so moved by what's going on on the outside. Verse 18. Oh, this is it. For our light affliction. If you want to know what that light affliction is, read in 2 Corinthians 11. He talks about what the light affliction was. If you think you're having a bad day, go read that sometime. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working or earning for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. So Paul's perspective was not on this life and what all these issues of this life. His whole perspective is on what is the eternal life about? What is the goal? What is my purpose? So that I could come to the end of my course and say, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. There's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, not just for me, but for all those who are looking for His calling. And this is how I try to live my life. No matter the ups and downs, whether I'm in a storm or everything's great, my goal, my eyes are on the finish. Everything you're doing here is affecting there. I'm not talking whether you go to heaven, but once you're there, we just did a series on eternity. Once you're there, the things you're doing here are affecting the, your life there. The responsibilities you have, the things you have to worship with, all these things are earning for you something. He said, which are earning for me an exceeding eternal weight of glory. That was Paul's perspective. His eyes were in the spirit, not in the flesh. Verse 18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. That's a little difficult because how can... I can see how you can look not at the things that are seen. You just close your eyes. We're good at that. We do that all the time. But how do you look at things that are not seen? For the thing, because you don't look at them with these eyes, you look at them with the eyes of your heart. It's what you're focused on. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Can, can you put up the new, the, the new translation of that verse? This is a new translation that's come out. It's not actually a translation. It's called the Passion Translation. It's, it's kind of like the New Living, but, but there's some ways it really says things very, very well. Because we don't focus our attention on what's seen. So that's what we're talking about tonight. What's your attention focused on in your life? Not in church, but throughout your day. What's the focus of your attention? I know you've got to go to work and you've got to, you've got to you know, pay bills and you've got to do this. But even when you're doing that, you can do it to the glory of God. There's a wonderful little book. I don't know if we have it in there anymore. But the Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Written back in the 1600s by a simple monk who was, who was awkward. 
So they, they assigned him to clean dishes and work in the kitchen. And he would sweep the kitchen floor to the glory of God. He would pick up trash to the glory of God. We think spiritual things have to be this a worship service with our hands in the air and the glory cloud rolling in the back. No, the simple things of life that you do can be very spiritual if you're doing them as unto the Lord. If you're doing them as a service to Him to be faithful, to represent Him on your job, to represent Him when you're in the grocery line, to represent Him in situations where people will respect you to react one way and you respond by the Spirit in another way. You never know what's at stake in those moments when, when somebody's looking at you and you want to lash out at them and said you smile at them. You have no idea what God may have set up there and that we miss when we react in the flesh. Now, it helps me that I'm a pastor who's on television because I can't just go flesh out. I wouldn't want to do it anyway. But the idea that that person I just flesh out in front of may be somebody that watches on TV or somebody that sits in the back that I don't know. Because I've had people come up to me, oh, hi, Pastor John. I had no idea they went to church here because they hang out back in the, back there. And I can't see them back there. And so I've had to learn. But see, I want to do that not because I may be somebody who goes to church. I want to do that because who lives in here. Because I represent Him. So that should govern our life. Govern our action. So I want to close with these two quick stories because it shows you how this relates to. Because this becomes very important when it comes to walking by faith. We didn't go over there, but in 2 Corinthians 5 or 7, it says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. And I suspect there are many of us in here tonight that are believing God for things, that are trusting God, have asked God for things, whether it's your finances, your health, or things like this. But where you've trained your focus, where you set your focus, drastically affects your faith. Because in every faith battle, it's a battle between what your senses are telling you and what God's Word tells you. And how you learn to walk trains you to be moved by one or the other. And the greatest example of this, of course, is Jesus. Jesus faced situations where he was doing one thing and everything around him told him something else was wrong. Let's go quickly to uh, uh, Mark chapter 5. I'm just going to summarize this. This is a story where Jesus tells his disciples, we're going to get in the boat and we're going to go to the other side. They get in the boat and Jesus is tired, so he curls up on a pillow in the back of the boat and he goes to sleep. And, and on, in the Sea of Galilee, these, these storms are, can come out of nowhere. They just whip up out of nowhere. And one of these storms whips up, and the boats, the water's coming into the boat, which means it's splashing on Jesus. And these disciples are panicking. Now, at least four of them were fishermen who earned their living and grew up out on those waters in these boats. And they're scared. And they look back at the Master, and He's asleep. You ever felt like Jesus was asleep in a storm you were going through? And you would think, well, he can't be anywhere near because he was near. He'd get me out of this storm. And he's asleep back there. And he's getting wet with them. But he's asleep. Why? Why is he asleep? Because he said, we're going to the other side. He didn't say we're going to the other side if we don't sink. He didn't say we're going to the other side unless a storm comes along and stops us. He said we're going to the other side. I've got to be careful here because I can get on several sidetracks here. It's like when God told Moses to lead the children of Israel 
out of Egypt into the promised land and they come to the Red Sea, there's water again. And the sea's an obstacle and Pharaoh's army's bowing down on them and the people panic and run to Moses and then Moses says, okay, I got this under control and then he panics and goes to God. He says, what are we going to do? And God's answer, I love God's answer there. God says, why are you talking to me? Uh, duh, God, don't you understand the problem here? I mean, there's, there's a sea here in our way and the biggest army in the world, the most dangerous army in the world is bearing down on us. Everything looks like we're about to be destroyed and you got us into this mess. Ever feel like that? And God's answer was, oh, I understand how hard this is. Let me see what I can do. He says, why are you talking to me? He says, what's in your hand? In other words, God was expecting Moses to use what was his hand and then God would back him up. Jesus wakes up and they have the audacity to say, don't you care about us? You, you didn't panic like we're panicking. Don't you see the storm? Don't you see and understand we're about to go down? Don't you see that? Why won't you do something? Jesus wasn't panicked. Storms didn't bother him. When you can walk on water, what difference does it make if the boat goes down? Well, that's Jesus. Peter walked with him. Jesus stands up in the bow, rebukes the storm. Then he turns and rebukes them. See, religion has warped our minds. Jesus is saying to them, Woe, you of little faith. In other words, why did you bother to wake me up over a little thing like this? Why didn't you take care of it? How come you don't understand the authority you have? I've told you we're going to the other side. So Jesus was not moved by the storm because he wasn't governed by his senses. But then Jesus spent all night in prayer. Jesus was in communion with his Father all the time. Jesus obeyed his Father. Another story, one of my favorites, is in Mark chapter 5. A religious leader, Jairus, has come and said, Master, please come pray for my daughter. She's about to die. And Jesus says, I'll come. There's nobody Jesus ever told, I won't come. In fact, I don't want to get off of this. I can't. So he's going. And on the way, the woman with the issue of blood touches his garment. Jesus feels power go out of her. And then he turns and says, who touched me? That's another side to, to prove to me once and for all, it's God's, always God's will to heal. Because the woman touched his garment, believing that if I touch his garment, I shall be well. This is the order power went out of him. She felt in her body that she was whole. Jesus felt the power go out of him and turned and asked, who touched me? Which means he did not know who was healed. She was already healed and he didn't know who it was. He couldn't check the list to see who was naughty and nice. He couldn't see whether she was on the list to be healed or not because the power was in him and was drawn by her faith. And he asks her some questions. She's ministering to her. And then a, 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 a runner comes from Jairus' house and says, don't bother, this is just what we, don't bother the master anymore. It's too late. Your daughter's dead. Can you imagine what those words, I mean, it's one thing if he'd never gotten to Jesus. 
His hope was, if I just get to Jesus, if I can just get Jesus to come, and He said He'll come. I found Jesus. He said He's come, and we're on the way. We're going. If I just get there in time, I know, I believe, He can stop my daughter from dying. And this woman interrupts. This old woman who's been sick, but He didn't say anything. And when this bad report comes, I mean, there's nothing more final than report, I'm sorry, they're dead. The word was, it's too late. Everything in their senses, I'm sure Jairus' mind, was gripped with the message, it's too late. I had the chance, and it was too late, she's dead. And in my mind, the words are, Jesus turns to Jairus and says, fear not. I, I, my view is this, is he went over and he grabbed him by the, by the robe. I've got to believe he looked right in his face, because he's saying to Jairus, don't, don't, this is not over yet. This is not over yet. Fear not. Only believe. In other words, I need you to not fear and I need you to believe because I'm not moved by what that report was. That report is irrelevant to me because I am the resurrection of the life. When I'm the resurrection of the life, death is not an obstacle to me because I'm the resurrection. Death is not going to stop what I said I was going to do because I'm the resurrection. But I need you to fear not and only believe. So Jesus was not moved by the fact that she was dead. Because as Marilyn Brown taught, Marilyn Neubauer taught, there's a truth that's a higher reality than the fact that her heart had stopped beating and her blood had stopped flowing. Because the power and life of God is greater than the fact of death, the fact of sickness, the fact of a disaster, the fact. There's three cases that I've been involved in in this last year where doctors' reports have been, it's too late, it's over, bring the family in, they're dying. And I know there were others praying, and some of them were not, because there were not situations here. But I refused to give up. I said, Jesus, I know the doctors are doing the best they can, but I'm not moved by that report. I had a situation here a number of years ago where there was a baby, newborn. The doctors summoned. I prayed over that baby. I, said, I spoke over that baby. That baby will live and not die. And that night I got a phone call at 1.30 in the morning. The doctor said, it's over. Bring the, bring the family in. This baby's over. And I rushed down there. I got a hold of a family member. And I said, I don't care what the doctors say. I'm standing on God's Word. You stand with me. God's Word is stronger. They're doing the best they can. They decided to give the baby a shot. A, a, I mean, a chance. And said, well, let's transfer them to Children's Hospital in Boston. Or Mass General. And I remember talking to the grandfather who followed them up. He said about every 20 miles on the way up, the baby got stronger. And that baby's about, that child is about nine years old now. And healthy and well. But I've learned to not be moved by what I see. Now I waffle, I get weak in this, just like you can. But I've learned it works. God's Word works. But you can't practice that in a storm. You've got to practice that in your daily life. 
When you get up in the morning, you set yourself. And what you don't realize is somebody else's destiny may depend on whether you've learned to do this or not. Now, I don't know if that baby would have lived otherwise, but I know it rested on me at that point to stand and not move. I know of three other situations in this year where all hope was given up. And I refused to quit. And I'm sure there were others, so it's not just me. And so I know what the doctors say. I appreciate what the doctors say. Bless you. But I'm not letting go. Because I declare in Jesus' name that person will live and they will not die. And they're all well and out of the hospital today. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and ask you to help us because Jesus, you know, your word says that we're to come boldly to a throne of grace to receive mercy and find help in time of need. Lord, all of us deal daily with this battle between our flesh and our spirit. Help us to take the word we've heard tonight to encourage us to remind us, to instruct us, Lord, every day, beginning tomorrow, of the potential that you have in us, the limitless potential, because it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. The kingdom of God is within, but it's in our spirit, and we live so dominated by our flesh. Father, help us to be more and more sensitive to the spirit man on the inside of us and the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who wants to lead us and guide us every day. Show us things to come and lead us into truth. Enable us for the grace and anointing of Christ to work through us and to set free captives, heal the brokenhearted, deliver those that are bound up, and set the captives free. Teach us to walk by faith and not by sight. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. Before we